0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio is a purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some new earbuds or headphones, if you're in the market for some new listening gear, go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code OtherPeople, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio, these are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think
1: it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just All one right, time. everybody, here we go <laughs> again.
0: This is right. it. This is Other People. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the podcast, The Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Tom McAllister is my guest today. His novel, The Young Widower's Handbook is available from Algonquin Books. It's the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and uh, it's a terrific novel. Tom McAllister and I are going to be in conversation in just a moment. Um, before I get started, I want to say a few words about uh, about um, a poet named Mark Balmer. Many of you listening may be aware of him or know him. He was uh, killed this past week uh, very tragically while walking across the country barefooted to raise awareness for climate change. Uh, you know, I don't, I didn't know him and I kind of, it's, it's so weird the way grief works in the age of uh, the internet and social media, because I had a very vague knowledge of him based on Twitter essentially and email and had some minimal interaction with him that, to be honest with you, I didn't entirely remember. And as many of you know, I always complain on this show about my memory. In fact, I think I complain about my memory in my conversation with Tom McAllister. So it's just, you know, in the in the swirl of digital existence, uh, especially if you're active on social media, you wind up communicating with a lot of people. I do this show, and I receive a lot of correspondence. I have multiple different email addresses. So... Uh, you know, I, I was looking at Twitter, which I've been doing less of lately, but I was on Twitter and I started to see a lot of, uh, you know, griefy tweets, if that's the right way to put it. And then, uh, there were links to eulogies and there were news stories about how Mark had been walking, uh, in Florida and was hit by a car and was killed. And, uh, it's just awful. It's like uh, he'd been out on the road walking barefooted for a hundred days. I think it was day 101 when he was hit. And uh, I don't know. It's it's weird. It, this sort of stuff affects me. And I, I guess uh, to pay tribute, I wanted to, first of all, uh, commend him for being a person of action. I think that's really the takeaway. Uh, not knowing the guy personally, I don't have any you know, real stories to relate or knowledge of him. But I do commend someone who's willing to start walking across the country barefooted for a cause as noble as uh, raising awareness about climate change. You know, some people might scoff at that or think that's ridiculous, but I I think that's a cynical view. Somebody who's willing to do that is a person of character and integrity. That kind of action, you know, to be a person of action is rare. So I think that kind of underscores... The loss, you know, uh, humanity is made richer by people like that. So anyway, I, you know, I was reading online about all of this and feeling sad. And then I wound up doing a search cause, uh, you know, I, I recalled interacting with him or at least hearing from him. And I, I did have, uh, some emails from Mark. He was a listener of the program going all the way back to the very beginning in October of 2011 which was about a month after the show launched. And uh, on October 24th, 2011, he said, I just wanted to, he said, dear Brad, I just wanted to send along my thank yous for having this show. Your podcast has helped me figure out how to work. I recently got finished with grad school and have been working this summer and fall at a nonprofit, but they don't give me benefits. And they told me recently they no longer have money to pay me. I have to find a new job. I guess I now need to figure out how to find work. Do you have any suggestions on how to find work? I sent a cover letter to Harper Collins for an open secretary job. This is the cover letter I sent. Dear people, I am very skillful. I have done many things. Here's a list of things I can do very well. Provide support, perform duties, be coordinated, type things, use a telephone, open an envelope, update files, look at a calendar, wear a jacket, work while someone is watching me work, listen to people and write down what they say, use the internet think when other people are thinking. To summarize, I am a supportive person who can do things in a coordinated manner, especially if these quote-unquote things fall into the category of typing, using a telephone, opening an envelope, updating files, looking at a calendar, wearing a jacket, being in the same room as someone else, using my ears and hands at the same time, clicking things on the internet, or using my brain when other people are also using their brains. In addition to the above qualities, I am a well-adjusted person was very mentally stable. I like to work. My brain chemistry understands how to be optimistic about its ability to be human. Signed Mark Ballmer. <laughs> and then he closes the email to me by saying that he looks forward to listening to more of my shoes. S H O E S, which I guess is a typo though. It could have been intentional. And then on May 26th, 2014, he says, Hi, Brad, I am rewriting Jonathan uh, Franzen's Freedom one page at a time through the process of erasure. Each day I post a new one to my blog. The reason I am writing is because I often do these de while listening to your podcast. In some ways, the podcast has shaped the project and it has also made me less bored than I would otherwise be. Thank you for giving me something to listen to while I destroy the words of Jonathan Franzen. Thanks, Mark. And then, uh like perhaps most heartbreakingly, I found a third email from uh April of last year in which he was telling me about his book and saying, "You know I'd love to do the show and I, at that time, I had made the decision to not do remote interviews, so I didn't do the interview uh I didn't respond. I wish that I would have, but I just you know I've been trying to do in person for a variety of reasons unless it's a book club author or, you know, it's somebody that I just can't say no to. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's just sort of an internal policy. But now he's gone. I don't get a chance to talk to him for the show. That sort of breaks my heart. So rest in peace, Mark Balmer. I didn't know you, but uh, I was moved uh, by you. Especially these past few days reading about your life and how much you meant to people. And, uh, what a good guy you were and what you stood for and what you were willing to, uh, do in the service of that, which is more than most people can say. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond. His new novel is called The Young Widower's Handbook. It is his debut novel. It is available from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. It is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Very pleased to have him here and to be featuring this book this month. Here he is, folks. This is Tom McAllister. I mean, like I said, a lot of that
1: book is kind of exploring bad fan behavior and trying to start fights with people in in Arrowhead (laughs) Stadium in Kansas City and... And like I hit a point where I thought like, okay, if I'm writing about this, that means I know that that is bad, and so I have to make some sort of choice here, where either I'm going to keep being an asshole or be less of an asshole. Uh, and so wait, so you it, you you gotten into fistfights at football games and stuff like that? Oh yeah, it was uh yeah, and I thankfully not as many of my confrontations escalated to actual physical violence as they should have, because like, I'm not a big guy. I talk too much. And if I were drunk in the crowd, I was, I would start, you know, I'd get in people's faces. Thankfully, sometimes it didn't go beyond that or, or other people would get in a fight for me. Um, (laughs) It's always, uh, it's always nice to outsource that to your friends. (laughs) Yeah, this, I mean, one thing that helped a lot was one of my good friends is, um, he's almost seven feet tall. And so there were more than a few occasions in college where you know some confrontation was about to start, and he would just stand up, and then someone would walk away. Um, yeah, no one's gonna fuck with a seven footer. Like even if he's really skinny, like it just it's, yeah. it's too much human. It's weird. It's weird to see a seven foot person in real life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so most of that fan behavior was, I'd say, could be safely, basically between age seventeen and twenty
0: three. Uh, that's when my peak bad behavior was. Uh, and that's Philly. That's Philly too, because like you know, there, there's bad behavior in every stadium, but yeah, yeah. Philadelphia, they're like uh, notoriously unruly fans. Yeah, and it's it's
1: rewarded and encouraged. You know, like if you're at a tailgate outside the the Eagles game, so if there's a four o'clock game, tailgating will start at nine a.m. and you know by one o'clock, people are pretty drunk, and you know you'll definitely be encouraging. Like if a 14-year-old started yelling some stuff at like a Cowboys fan, they would definitely get cheered on in that, you know. And so it's like a way to get this immediate – I mean it's a real weird kind of scary mob mentality thing. But it's also a way to get like immediate positive feedback from a thousand people dressed just like you. Um, (laughs) So –
0: Well, and it's uh, – the sport – yeah, the sport also brings it out, you know. Like I went to – lsu wisconsin the game up at lambeau field uh, the first oh, yeah. the first game of the year this year because my um my parents went to lsu and there's all this like extended family like, my whole extended family is from louisiana and my cousin is at the game and winds up getting into a fight with a fellow lsu fan because the guy was drunk and like shouting racial epithets um <laughs> you know just like a southerner who had come up and like was you know lsu was getting beat and this guy starts shouting racial epithets uh. and. My cousin was drunk and said something, and it's just like you know, this stuff happens. And uh, you know, you're at a football game, and everyone's had too much to drink, and the game is sort of, I don't know. Like I, like I was saying, you, know, you you internalize this stuff; it becomes part of you. Like somehow the team is getting beat, and and it gives you license to um, behave badly. Yeah, there's a weird, scary tribal thing,
1: <laughs> uh, and I mean, the the atmosphere of it is uh, not just the alcohol, but like. There's a fucking military flyover before the games. I can curse on this, right? That's oh, fine. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so there's the military fly. I mean, it's a very militaristic thing from the opening seconds. Um, there's a thing. I don't remember whether I even put it in the memoir or not. The first time my dad... I have an older brother. He's six years older than me. And the first time my dad took my brother to an Eagles game, my brother was probably like eight. Eagles had lost, so everyone's leaving in a foul mood. People are screaming and whatever. And my brother bumped into a guy and knocked his beer out of his hand and uh the guy walks up to my brother and grabs him by the shirt and starts screaming in his face. Uh and this is apparently true. Uh then my dad my dad who's a pretty mild mannered guy overall just stepped between him and grabbed the guy and uh you know, so what's your problem? The guy says, he spilled my beer and my dad allegedly said, and there are witnesses, he said right away, I'll spill your blood. Uh, <laughs> which <laughs>
0: Pretty cool. Uh, That's a good presence of mind um, right there. And
1: then he didn't. He, did, he Then he didn't take either of us to a game for another ten years. I think it's, until we were much older.
0: And, and yeah. There, and there were like flak jackets that fit you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I, you know, and now you've published your first novel. Like to transition, yeah. so you did a memoir. Um, it too, uh, I think, had grief as a theme. Uh, correct. Yeah, yeah,
1: because it's—I mean—it's built first around the. uh, My dad died when I was twenty, and so it kind of explores like the father-son relationship through the sports bonding thing.
0: Yeah, that's it's just how it is in my family too with my dad. Um, And so now you've done uh, a novel called *The Young Widower's Handbook*. Uh, Thrilled to feature it in the book club this month, and obviously uh, with the word "widower" in the title, you've got grief on your mind again.
1: Yeah, I, um, I,
0: yeah, so there was a point
1: when I first started talking about this, the idea was I was going to write something happy and then it turned really sad, like three pages in, uh, (laughs) but it was, I mean, where it came up was I was at, um, my wife and I were, uh, traveling. We tend to travel around when, around when our anniversary is it's mid August and I, I teach. And so my vacation time is usually August. And, um, we were at dinner on our anniversary and we started talking about, uh, what would happen if you died? What would happen if I died? It's kind of, I guess, standard anniversary talk. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I kind of, I just said like, well, well, actually my, my hypothesis was that if she were to die soon, that I would just kind of fall apart, you know, cause she takes care of all the hard stuff in our lives. And I, you know, uh, paying bills, taking care of all of our social calendar shit and, uh, you know, basically maintaining. And, um, I said something like, well, if maybe if you died, I feel like we, I would, we'd have all this travel we talk about doing. Why don't I, you know, I think I would take your ashes with me on a road trip was sort of a joke. And then by the end of that dinner, we had kind of sketched out the first chapter that of this book, uh, because the first thing she said was like, oh, you know what? That's a book I would read. And, uh, the first book was sort of hard to sell to women. Not that women don't like sports, but marketing wise, we had a hard time selling it to people who besides like fathers and sons and sports fans. Um,
0: and, and, so we kind and, of started, and Philly sports fans in particular Because it's regional Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely And so like, we could say to people You don't have to be a, an Eagles fan to like it But then they would look and see the Eagles on the cover And read the stuff, stuff about Philadelphia And they'd say, yeah, well, I don't care I'm a Lions fan or, yeah. or would I? <laughs> Right, fuck the Eagles Yeah, <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, So with this one, it started just with the idea Of me trying to figure out like, What would I do if my wife died suddenly because i've kind of i feel like my marriage to her is one of the things that i've done right in my life i feel like it's something i do pretty well and so like what if that thing was taken away um and i had to kind of try to redefine myself and the character is not exactly based on me but that was kind of the germ of the book anyway
0: well yeah no that makes sense i'm just relieved to know that you're not a widower (laughs) yeah you know that's um
1: when i first started saying it out there, i think there were a few agents who were asking like who were kind of tiptoeing around it trying to figure out whether I had a wife who was still alive or not. And you're like, listen, yeah. if, it, if it, like, what do you, like, what would help you buy the book? Like that's basically. Yes. Yeah. Like if we could, if <laughs> my wife could just go on a long vacation for about three months, she can be dead if we need her to be dead. Just, you
0: know, <laughs> just let us know. Yes. Uh, but no, that makes sense, you know? And it's also cause like I'm at this point now where I'm starting to finish a, a project and I'm starting to think about like, wh- what's the next project going to be? And, uh, you know, a couple of things resonate. First of all, this notion that like, oh, I'm going to write a happy book after writing a book that deals with a lot of heaviness and sadness, and then realizing that you're writing another sad book. (laughs) So like, let's start there. Like, do you think that this is just you? I mean, you know, like, is this, is this going to be a through line in all of your work? Is it even, is it even possible to write a work of literary fiction? That's, that's just happy. Yeah, man, that's
1: a great question. So like, well, the next thing I just so I just I'm right before we started this interview I was working on edits on a new uh, book length thing, and it's about a school shooting. And so at some point I guess I decided like <laughs> so this it's is a just comedy it is yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, uh, so the first question is: Is it possible to write a happy literary fiction? I don't know really. I, it seems it seems hard. I mean, not to say that they all have to be dour and miserable. Um, but, like, there's something fu- fundamentally dishonest, I think, about, like, saying I'm going to set out to write a, any kind of specific ending. Uh, you know, if I say I'm going to write out I, this needs to be a sad ending or a happy ending, right? Because then you're you're not being true to the characters of the story or whatever. Um,
0: well, you know what I'm thinking but, of? You know what I'm thinking of right now is a lot – I mean, if a book – a book can be funny, and, and often this is my favorite kind of book – Uh, But it's a you know, it's a it's kind of a tragic comedy. It's born from sadness. So you have both. But I'm also now thinking of a book like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is really funny to me. That isn't really very sad at all. It's 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 angry. So I think if you're if you're going for funny, which I think is some approximation of happy in literature, then it's got to either come from tragedy and sadness or some sort of deep anger. Yeah,
1: that that sounds right to me, man. That's I mean, at least those are the kinds of books I love too. Like these things that are there's there's a certain urgency to that. Is maybe because it seems like maybe happiness seems less urgent to convey, or or maybe I'm just annoyed if someone wants to just keep telling me how happy they are. Yeah, Uh, you know, it's just like just shut up for a minute and just keep it to yourself. Um, Well, I want to hear also
0: also just the work required, like the sustained attention and investment of time and energy required to write a novel i can't imagine that trying to convey happiness could keep you going (laughs) yeah right that's uh it's insufficient fuel
1: yeah and it's more fun to fuck with the characters you know and to to make things harder on them um i mean there's obviously ways you can go too far on that in that way too like sometimes i think um Someone like Franzen, I think I sometimes his books seem like the only mission is to just pile as much shit as possible onto his characters, um, and I feel like it's okay to give them a glimmer of hope now and then. Uh, but yeah, there it just it's more fun to write to have things going wrong.
0: And you and you work like you're working on a book now that's about a school shooting. Uh, I'm assuming you don't have any immediate personal experience with that either. Like that you no, you're, thank
1: goodness. Yeah, thank, uh,
0: so you're so you're able. You've been able to work outside in, but you find something, uh, something deeply meaningful uh, at the personal level, whether it's like, you know, you're you're working on a fear, you're exploring some question, like, how does it manifest? Yeah, like in that way, I mean,
1: you were just talking about anger, and that's definitely that book started with being angry. I started it like two years ago after it wasn't Sandy Hook. I mean, I can't, you can't keep straight all the different school shootings anymore but uh it was after one of them and it was after reading all the the rhetoric that follows you know we start with some thoughts and prayers and then we start with saying well it's not gun's fault it's whatever and we and so it started with trying to actually started with writing a scene from the perspective of the shooter but then i'm trying to kind of write what comes after kind of this town that becomes the news for three weeks and then we forget and kind of following up on those people as they try to keep living um I mean, I – well, like I said, thank goodness, no personal experience. Last year, I teach at Temple University in Philly, and uh, we did have – was it last year? Yeah, it was on April 20th last year. We had, uh, I guess, a credible threat of a shooting, uh, and they had warned us, like, maybe don't go to campus that day. Uh, I did go to campus. I just had stuff scheduled, and I thought, like, I don't know. Maybe – I don't know. Maybe I'll just – I have to live my life. Uh, but it was a weird – day on campus man like there were a lot of people not there uh it was just it was a real ghost town um it was really thank and thankfully nothing happened it was probably a hoax it was probably it was probably some student who got high and thought it would be really funny but you know what can you do
0: yeah i mean i remember distinctly being in boulder the day that columbine happened which kind of feels. Oh, which, i mean it's not the first school shooting but it sort of feels like the first one in the popular consciousness somehow yeah it seems uh, like the one that started it you know yeah 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 and i just remember so there was no precedent for it is is kind of what i'm saying like i didn't have yeah. like now when a school shooting happens sadly it's like oh well another one you know but like back then it was it was really new and shocking in a different way and i remember i was pulling up to a coffee shop and i was like flipping through like fm radio and the kind of stations that don't normally do the news, you know, and it was like some, yeah. de- like some sort of DJ, you know, that's who, who is normally very sunny and just like announcing the songs or whatever. And the weather was uh, like pouring his heart out and saying how awful this was. And then you sit there and you're listening to the, the news feed, and then you get out of the um, car and you go to the coffee shop and everyone's talking about it. Like it's those are very vivid memories for me and I'm not a person who has many, but that one's stuck
1: yeah yeah if you i mean i can't imagine here in the morning zoo crew announcing yeah. uh, you know pork chop and the road dog or whatever yeah. are doing 9-11 yeah that's what um, it was like that's what the, it was like yes yeah i mean i think columbine's the one that established the playbook that we all know now like there's this sad formula um dave cullen has a i mean has the like kind of the seminal I, book on uh, columbine I, is really I, good. I was just uh, gonna
0: say that's a terrific book yeah, he's it it's great.
1: And now, sadly, he's his Twitter presence is basically like every time I'm, there's a mass shooting, he has to people have to go to him and say, like, what do you think of this one? And he has to say, like, it, it's pretty bad.
0: Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's uh, a, it's uh, it's also interesting about that book, how much in the popular media portrayal of Columbine uh, was gotten wrong. Like, that's the thing, like you thought you'd sort of heard everything because it was yeah. so, so much saturation of news coverage. But there was a lot of misreporting on that. And his book uncovered a lot of it. I found that fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, I was surprised
1: the same way. I was surprised. I, I was I was in high school when it happened, and I kind of devoured a lot of the news coverage of it. Uh, but I learned a whole lot from that book that I, I I had no idea about.
0: Okay, so like that's that's point number one. You know, I just was. Uh, this is kind of a long winded way of doing it, but I was. We were talking about <laughs> how you, how you work and how uh, I'm relieved that you're not a widower and that you're. <laughs> you know you you in order to do um to do a book it's it's either sadness or anger that's driving it uh and i guess you have an example now you know of both uh, with the the memoir and then uh widowers i think sadness and maybe fear and then with the the one that you're working on about the school shooting it's anger um but i want to talk a little bit more about writing from fear like an imagination of a uh, terrible event that you very much hope to avoid in your own life and using that as a launching point for a novel which seems to be what you've done you know you love your wife you have a good marriage and of course you're you're terrified of losing it like like anyone would be um was it i mean that must have been kind of grueling to have to go through that process did you get anything positive from it did it deepen (laughs) like did it deepen your appreciation for her
1: yeah i'm absolutely and like. So, yeah, I'll give you a two-part answer on that one. Yeah, there, there were definitely some days where um the the work basically was trying to get myself in a mindset of how I would feel if the worst thing that could happen to me happened. And there there were some days where I and and she, you know, if I'm uh, you know, home on break from teaching and she's at work, I can spend I could spend 9 hours Uh, not working straight through i'd spend three hours kind of playing around on the internet but six hours uh you know working and trying to feel bad and i could get myself feeling badly enough that like you when she gets home you're like oh right she's she's still here this is good Uh, (laughs) you're alive
0: i could see i could see you you know but
1: and then i just like follow her around the house like a dog you know just like you know guess what i did today and kind of (laughs) reporting things um Oh, the second part was—you know—did I get anything out of it? Or I, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, part of it was like, I feel like the way I've been—I started thinking about this book was that it's basically a love story that just starts at the wrong spot, you know, that starts at the worst possible spot, and um, and so a lot of uh, thinking about it was just thinking about the various ways in which it's important for me to remember to uh, not take. For granted that we have that we have a pretty good life now, actually, and a, a better life than I expected us to have in a lot of ways. And so, uh, writing the book was like this kind of bludgeoning reminder some days that, like, well,
0: it could go away, <laughs> so don't waste it. Yeah, well, that's that's a healthy thing to do, and maybe something that yeah. we don't do enough of is. is you know, you don't have to dwell on it or get too bleak about it, but remembering that, uh, we're mortal and that time yeah. is fleeting is, is that can be useful. That can spur you to, to positive action.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, and part of the book, um, too, I mean the, the main character Hunter, he's like, he's in his late twenties and he's sort of forced to reinvent himself because he's defined himself entirely as the husband of this person who people like better than him. And, uh, so also made me kind of evaluate my own life choices and path. You know, like if you strip this person away, are you still a person? Because I think we all have, I've been, my wife and I have been dating now for 15 years. We've been married almost 10 and like, and I'm, I'm almost 35. So it's a big chunk of my life. And, um, you know, there's this risk of defining yourself entirely just as part of a couple instead of an individual. In addition to being that, um, And I, you know, I guess it's important to think about healthy ways to create some distance where you're still actually a person.
0: Are you so, do you feel like you have like a, not a death obsession, but are you like more affected by it than most people? Like if you hear of a friend or somebody, you know, um, you know, being bereaved, losing somebody somehow, do you tend to latch onto that more than most? Yeah. I mean, I think so. uh, definitely, there are
1: people who had it way way worse as far as their parents had uh, go but like my dad dying when he did uh, I was a junior in college uh, and he was sick for about a year and a half he had cancer um and my my mother-in-law well who she would have been my mother-in-law uh my wife's mom died just around the same time I think for us it was like a, a such a formative experience you know it kind of changed the way we view things like I said I know other people had parents die much younger much more tragic ways all that stuff um but for me, it was like it yeah formative experience in in a few ways, partly um there 's a line I think I wrote in the memoir it 's been a long time uh, where I wrote that I found myself sometimes resenting people for having living parents uh or like my my mom my mom 's remarried now, and the, the guy 's very nice, but his dad is like ninety seven and they go to celebrate his birthday, and sometimes i 'm like what fucking business does this guy have being 97? Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> yes. who is he? And I realized that that reflects badly on me. Uh, no, but, but it's human. It's human. I get it. Uh, and so it definitely changed the way I felt about a lot of this stuff, uh, where it made me more callous in some ways to some depths, but it also made made it obviously a thing that was present in my mind a lot more than, you know, it became – it. Probably was an obsession for for a while um, until until I wrote the memoir. Probably until I worked some of that stuff out.
0: Yeah, it's funny, you know. Like lately, I've been doing this thing, like uh, kind of worried about myself <laughs> because yeah, uh, you know, I'll know people who've lost someone, uh, and especially if it's something tragic. There's a few of those floating around in my life, and fortunately, not too immediate, right? Um, but whether it's you know my aunt is is recently widowed, or I know somebody who lost his wife, or I know Um, you know, buddy of mine lost his daughter, uh, tragically that one's the worst one, but this is, these are people a lot of times who I don't, uh, see very often or even know very well. And I'll find myself writing to them, like uh, not constantly, but like (laughs) I, I, I'm a, I'm a letter writer. Like I'll write an email saying, Hey, thinking of you, keeping you in my thoughts. And then I'll do it again. I'll just do it regularly because I feel a strong sense of I I don't like the whole process of condolence where it's like the death happens. You send a note to acknowledge the death or you somehow acknowledge it in person or whatever. And then that's basically it. And then time, then time marches on and everybody goes back to normal. And I I keep thinking to myself, these people are still in the shit. Like no one's talking to them. It's like that seems so cruel to me. And so, and so then I'll write more notes but I usually don't hear back, or if I do, it's kind of short. And then it's like, am I annoying them? <laughs> like, am I inter- like, am I internalizing this too much, or, or over empathizing? You know, it was my was my note too uh, treacly? And uh, do you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like, you can start to criticize yourself for trying to write a nice note of condolence to a grieving person. It's just humanity. It feels very Seinfeldian. Yeah, the the best book I've read about
1: that exact thing, and it's a book that I had in mind a lot when I was writing this one is uh, Elizabeth McCracken's memoir. Um, it's called "An Exact Replica of a Figment of My yeah. Imagination."
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I have talked yeah, to Elizabeth uh, for this show, and maybe for that book. I'm trying to remember, but yeah, we talked about yeah. that.
1: and it's so good. And and you know, when I read one thing, I loved about that book is some of the she said so much of what you were just saying, and it was the first time I'd seen an author writing about that topic in exactly that way where like that first week and a half or two weeks after someone dies everyone's very helpful and present and it's great and they all mean well and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing but it's also like you don't even know you're so not you're in such a fog you forget about all of it and then it's like two months later you're you're supposed to be better now you know people want you to be better and back and you still feel like shit you know or like maybe
0: it's just hitting you i mean who knows
1: Yeah, right. Now it's just like this. Now you're back at work, you're back at wherever. And now it's just like every day, like, oh, right, this person is not there. Or there's these little things that you remember. And, you know, like I have a have an aunt who recently uh, was widowed. uh, Well, about a year ago now. And for the first month, she's doing well. She seemed like she was doing very well. And she was out and active. And "Oh, it's great. She's back on her feet. But then it was like six months later, she was really struggling, you know, where she couldn't keep it together. Family function, she was crying a lot, you know, drinking, all that stuff. And um, it's inconvenient, you know, and it makes you an inconvenience to people if you're really sad around them. It's like even the nicest people are sort of annoyed because they're like, well, I don't want to – I don't want to invite him out today if he's just going to be miserable, if he's going to – you know. But see,
0: Um, uh, see, I'm the person who's like, yeah, I want to hang with that person. (laughs) I'm like, I I, I, – you know, that's the thing I – I feel maybe too much attachment to the, to the grieving. Or I, I guess when I was a kid, I had a buddy who lost both his dad and oh. his brother within four years, like tragically. Oof. And that was like right there. And of course I'm like a teenager and I'm trying to process all this. And I just remember like one of the, the searing memories of my life is my mom telling me, cause I was like, well, what do I do? You know, with my buddy, I was like, what, what do I do? And my mom was like, you just do something
1: yeah and, absolutely
0: you know what i'm saying it's like don't do nothing when somebody's in trouble or is going through a shit time err on the side of doing something and so that's kind of what i always tell myself whenever i'm like should i write a long letter to somebody i barely know for the third time <laughs> in the last <laughs> calendar year you know like just i i do that and i guess i'm questioning whether or not it's the right thing i guess it's better to do that than do nothing that's kind of where yeah. i'm falling on it yeah i think that's real good advice from your
1: mom yeah just like just show up you know uh that's yeah, I think so. people a lot, of, a lot of times don't show up because they're afraid of imposing or saying the wrong thing or whatever. But at least in my experience, it's always been people are grateful to, to be remembered and not forgotten after that part. You know, it's not just that like I sent you a sandwich platter with a note that says "Sorry about your dad." Well, yeah, uh, you and, know.
0: And the thing too about grief and about difficulty is that it's so isolating. Yeah, you know, that's what I because people and I know this like both from personal experience and then from the outside looking in is that uh you know you have that intense 2 weeks of grief or whatever where everyone's sort of surrounding you and offering support and kind of going through that ritual and then time you know marches on and everybody sort of gets back to it and then there you are and you're supposed to be uh, you know back on your feet and doing well and back to normal and all this stuff and that that that's a very isolating feeling yeah you know where you're like well I don't want to bring this up cuz I don't want to be Debbie downer but uh, yeah and it's it's weird that it can be so isolating because it's
1: also such a universal. Like it's something that most people have experienced, and yet I guess everyone experiences it in such an individual way, where they just do it at different times. And so everybody's afraid to impose their. They were all just so closed off or repressed or something. Yeah, it's
0: it's a tough subject matter. I think we need to talk about it more. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I need I needed to ask somebody about this, you know it's been yeah, bothering. Here I am, man. Thanks. Dude. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you, you published this book. Well, let's talk about getting it published because right. you obviously had some success with the memoir. Um, I guess that, that sets a stage. Like once you, once you've been published once, it's easier to get published again, theoretically, uh, but you're doing fiction this time as opposed to non, uh, did like, how did the process go? Did you have an easy time of it? Were there lots of rejections or uncertainty? Yeah. So, um, it actually was not. As much easier as I thought it
1: would be. So I had um one agent, Catherine Boyle, sold the memoir uh to Villard with random who's a random house imprint. And uh I had sent her the next thing I sent her was this this novel that's never gonna get published. Uh, it's a it's like a six hundred and fifty page novel about pro wrestling. It's very self indulgent. <laughs> uh there's like seventy pages in there that I still feel very good about, and the rest is probably not very good. Um she couldn't sell it anywhere. And then I sent her this book, The Widower. And uh, she did not like it at all. Uh, she wrote back with this very lukewarm, like, "Well, you know, I can. If you want to go forward with this, we can see what we can do." And so I said, "Well, you know, if you're not into it, why should you? Know, let's let's just call it off." And so we sort of we had an amicable parting of the way of ways. Uh, so I had to go back through the agent process again. And I thought, like, "Well, this will be a slam dunk. You know, I've got pretty good credentials. I've got some publications. I've got the book." And uh, it took probably eight months to get a new agent uh, that took it just took so much longer than I thought it would um, and it was just it was basically a repeat of the first process I felt like I was starting over uh, I ended up with an agent who I love who's been great um, who's Julie that? bearer okay uh, it's Julie Julie bearer uh, she's with a group called the book group and um, then once she had it she suggested a bunch of, of really good edits she's a very hands-on editor um, and what's what I one thing I love about working with her is that I Once she makes the edits, I agree with them. You know, I've worked with some editors where we clearly don't see things in the the same way. Um, She made the book a lot better. Probably spent about a month working on it there, and then she sent it out. um, And Algonquin took it pretty quickly, actually. That that part went fast. Uh,
0: The agent part took forever,
1: Uh, but the once she sent it out, we were we were
0: we were ready to roll with it. That's good, though. That's I mean, you want the the acquisition part to go fast.
1: Yeah. thank God. I mean, there's so much waiting involved in this whole whole business that it's, uh, it's you know, and that's when you're sitting there waiting. I, I check my, you check your phone every 10 minutes to make sure it's not accidentally on silent or something, right. uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm about
0: to go out with my book. It's, I'm going to be in that mode in a couple oh, of weeks.
1: It's a nightmare, man. Thanks. Uh, not, not to be a downer. <laughs> yeah, uh, <right. laughs> Can't wait. <yeah. laughs> but then it can be very exciting. Uh, and at least finally, when people around you ask, like, what's going on with your book? You can finally have an answer, you know. Um, I think for a while my mom – so once Algonquin picked this book up, we had a long wait. Like uh, it was under contract in late 2014, I think. And uh, so it's two two years and a few months since it uh, – before it actually came out. And, uh, you know, just a lot of weird scheduling quirks. Uh, they didn't want to compete with this election, which, as it turns out, is probably a good thing. Uh, and during that period, everybody, yeah, you know, I'd see family and they'd be like, oh, is your book out yet? And I said, no, it's probably not out for another year and a half. And I think my mom started to not believe that it was actually under contract. <laughs> uh, but she, uh, so she'd be like, what's going on with this agent of yours? Are you sure she's okay? And I'm like, yeah, trust me. Well, no,
0: it's so she's... funny. People who don't uh, work in publishing, have a very hard time understanding the business of publishing usually like there are yeah. many there are many quirks to the business that seem crazy to, to outsiders
1: yeah especially just you know why should it take so long to print a book i could print a book on amazon in, you know on my own in, in one day uh but you know there's all this other stuff where they would got to get the advanced stuff out they have to contact the nervous breakdown and get copies for that for you know uh, all all these things
0: yeah uh, it's a process and you got to edit it and you got to you know they've got other projects and you know there's a pipeline you got to get got to get in the queue
1: yeah, we had to go through a bunch of different cover designs. We had
0: a long debate about the the title of the book, we had all this stuff. So, hmm. and did you I mean did you did you get your way on on stuff? Like, I mean, this is a part of it that I think maybe people who haven't published don't necessarily know, but uh you know, publishers will definitely have uh a lot of times will have very pointed thoughts about what <laughs> the, what the title should be, what the jacket should look like. You know, th- there are a lot of uh like marketing-related considerations, like how's it going to look on the shelf, how, how are people going to respond? Like, can you talk a little bit about those processes? Because that's sort of a behind-the-scenes thing that maybe uh, folks who haven't gone through it wouldn't know about. Yeah, for
1: sure. I, um, I I have a few friends. I guess I shouldn't name their names since I don't want to get them in trouble, but uh, they're they're uh, female authors, and they've had a lot of trouble with that where they would have a book and then the author, the designer would come back with this cover that's like a very stereotypically you know a uh, chiclet type cover even oh, yeah, though they're like tr- cupcakes in a stroller <laughs> yeah you know soft focus pink and shoes and you know and they're saying like i don't want to be sold just as a woman's book i want to be sold as a book you know um so that fortunately i haven't had problems with that but um you algonquin's actually been pretty great to work with they've been they're very uh they're a small house i think i've met almost everyone who works with them now uh and they're very collaborative uh my, my editor, Chuck Adams, has been around for a long time, and so he has strong opinions on certain edits. Um, for the most part, I, I agree with him, or at least he would, he would listen to me if I disagreed, which is good, uh, or where i try to – or I'd stubbornly – there was a lot of – in this book, for example, a lot of uh, push to try to make it a little more uplifting. Or uh, <laughs> there would be scenes that I thought were very funny, and they would tell me they were way too sad
0: uh you know so um (laughs) that's always great when you like yeah you think it's a you think it's a joke and everyone's crying
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and so uh in some ways i'd say this is great you know this that's exactly what i want but they would say no no you have to do something to soften this like there's um a chapter late in this book there's these like short interstitial second person chapters that are sort of like diary writing and there's one where he's making a list of different things and he's listing uh different ways he might kill himself (laughs) And I thought they were all funny. And the, the editor was just like, Tom, you got to tone it down. You can't have this be the last line in the chapter.
0: Um, but you know, they, so, they can save you from yourself, you know, especially. Absolutely. If, I'm, I'm very much that way. Like uh, I can get into dark humor that I think is hilarious. And like everyone else is like, dude, <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> like, <laughs> like this, absolutely. Is, this is dark. So you, you kind of need somebody to pull you back from the breach. Yeah. And so a good editor does exactly. They're saving
1: you from your worst impulses. Uh, and so and that's julie and chuck both great on that um the title we did have some debates about so when I, we sold the book it was under the title the widower's handbook uh not very different from what we ended up on uh but it, they hit a certain point where they um got very concerned that it sounded too sad basically uh they they were concerned on two 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 lines that it would sound too sad and that some people would think it was an actual handbook um which, you know what, I've actually gotten some feedback from people. I've seen some people, at least one Goodreads review, I shouldn't have read the Goodreads reviews, uh, at least one good, Goodreads review was complaining that they thought it was going to be more of a guide for how to handle this. I don't,
0: you're, you're, you know, talking, I feel... you're talking to a guy who published a novel called Attention Deficit Disorder. Do you know how many times my book <laughs> oh, has been misapprehended? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> should have thought uh, of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's they were concerned about those things. They, they, they got burned on one book that they felt great about. It was called... Um, Ah, shit it's called the revised fundamentals of caregiving uh which to me sounds like a really good title yeah, that's but johnny, said, johnny
0: johnny evison's novel
1: yeah and they said they had a hard time selling it for that same reason that people that were like well it just sounds too sad uh when i say it to writer people writer people are like that's a great title but when i say it to non-writer people they say yeah yeah that sounds too sad or it sounds like something you know like a pamphlet about you know running a nursing home or something
0: well but you know what's interesting is that uh they just made that into a movie, like Netflix made it into a movie. I think, yeah, with Paul Rudd. Yeah, and they but they changed the title to the fundamentals of caring.
1: Yeah, yeah, it
0: sounds much more uplifting. So they revised the revised fundamentals because <laughs> care caregiving's like I'm changing a bedpan and wiping exactly. your ass, and caring is just like I love you. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it has definitely definitely a different feel. And so, I guess, I mean, I have no idea about the sales numbers, but that's the title they kept coming back to me with. That they were like, we don't, we just don't want to steer you wrong that it seemed like they felt like they'd hurt the sales of that book by letting that title go through and so we went through a lot of titles man and i hated most of them um they would come back with one they'd say we had we just had a meeting how about this one we feel great about it and um the one i felt worst about was um the main character's name in this book is hunter yeah and the 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 suggested suggested title was hunter has a lonely heart and (laughs) I i said i can't do that title uh I mean the what first is that? thing most that's Carson, that's a play that on Carson McCullers too isn't yeah. it the heart is a lonely hunter or whatever am I, am I remembering yep. that okay exactly and then the, the next thing most people say is is they start singing that song owner of a lonely heart and I, I said like I'd be embarrassed to say that title out loud to people I can't do it um and we've but then I wasn't giving them anything better I mean it hit a point where I was going through my iTunes picking out song titles and just putting writing song titles down that sounded like book titles um like what? You know, uh, like half the Beatles songs, basically. Uh, you know, most of them. Most of them work. Long and winding road, that kind of <laughs> shit. Uh, a day, so, a day in the life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so it was. It was pretty. I was in a real panic that at some point we were going to have to pick a title because we had to start going to two designers, and that we were going to go to come to some focus grouped nonsense title that nobody liked, and it would make me sad finally i don't know how we compromised that adding young to the title would make everyone feel better but that's what we went with uh it was i think so it's, I a still good, feel okay it's a good
0: call it. i think it's actually a really good call i like the title yeah
1: i yeah so hopefully other people do too i know it's like i said it to my mom who was widowed and she was like that's too of course my mom my mom is going to read it and she's very excited you know uh, uh it, the way a lot of moms would be about books but um she said i wouldn't buy that book if it wasn't yours well
0: <laughs> thanks sorry <Mom>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh now you're making me all freaked out about the title of my book who got what, what's the title it's called the pinatas oh uh, i've gone yeah, could, i've gone that's... over it, and over it with people like some people like it some people don't my agent really likes it like she's she's bullish on it in a way that maybe even i'm not so like i'm, yes. I'm following her lead like if she if she likes it i like it yeah it's short it doesn't remind me of any other title that's we ran
1: into a lot of those that reminded us of exactly other titles you know um I think you. I think you can work with it. I right. think you. I, think I you're, just.
0: But I guess, like, I'm worried that people are going to think it's like a Latino novel, or like there's going to oh, be yeah. like a, a big birthday party or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if you could just add a birthday scene in somewhere in the middle, <laughs> a quinceanera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. And so, how do you work? Like, how do you get the work done? Because you're teaching, you're married, you have a full life, and you're publishing. So, how do you fit it in? What does your workday look like? Do you have a routine? Um, I'm someone who aspires
1: to having a routine, and I often have these thing, you know, these new routines I invent where you know every morning from nine to eleven I'm going to work at the, you know, but uh, I always break from those almost immediately. Um, I'm lucky. I mean, so we don't have kids, uh, which is fine. Uh, and we I'm lucky that my teaching schedule's pretty uh flexible. You know, well besides it I have um you know, I'm free during summers. I have a, I I've one summer class, but you know, that's not much. Um I have a lot of time when I'm not grading. Um so I'm able to work a lot of stuff in. Uh we I do a lot of stuff. I'm one of the editors at a, at a literary journal called Barrelhouse uh where we do a lot of stuff with that too, but um for the most part when I'm doing good work is usually I'll get up relatively early, my dog wants, wakes up by six thirty so I wake up with a dog. What kind of dog a, you got uh she's a uh a beagle basset mix okay of some sort um she's around ten we think um but she's a dog who wakes up at six thirty wants to eat we'll go for a walk and then we'll sleep until
0: six p m when she wants to eat again um which isn't bad. Uh, that sounds sometimes... like that sounds like the perfect division between Bassett that just wants to sleep and Beagle. <laughs> yeah. Beagles are more into food than any other dog breed I've ever been around. Yeah, this. Is, they're. It's amazing how much
1: she loves food. It's. It's, uh, it's that nose. To have that nose. Yeah, I don't think. Like sometimes I ask her, like, "What is the purpose of your life? Like, what are you living for?" And uh, she doesn't think about it much. The dog, uh, but I think, <laughs> with the only purpose in her life is to consume more food. I think that's uh, that's all she wants. Um. So, you know, walk the dog. And then I'll, I'll usually have time even um, before class. I'll try to get some writing done uh, before. While my head is still clear and what, what while I haven't had to like, you know, I'm doing a lot of freshman composition and which has a way of kind of draining your brain of like creative ideas <laughs> uh, and breaking your um, spirit yeah yeah there's yeah some days we're just like i know other people work harder than me for sure but there are some days after you teach three straight freshman comp classes where you're like i can't do anything with my brain anymore this is yeah there's um anyway to short answer that's a very long answer that doesn't really answer your question uh the, the short answer is i try when i'm deep into a project like when i was you know drafting this book i would try to work six days a week, six mornings a week, at least for an hour. Uh, and a lot of days I'm able to, um, generate a lot of words. Uh, it, during the early drafting stuff, I can write three or 4,000 words that are, they're, they're pretty rough, but I can, I can churn out words. Uh, do you, work from and, an out, do you work from an outline? Uh, no, I, I make outlines and then I bail almost immediately. Uh, I, I, there's this version of me that it's a much more organized structured writer that I aspire to be that I guess I'm just not going to be. Um, just like, you're not going to be like a a
0: writer who writes really happy novels. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There's some alternate timeline version of me who's just like every morning just feeling great. And, uh, you know, you know, like John Updike or something put maybe, I don't know how happy he was, but, uh, you know, putting on the tie and going to work every morning and just doing it. But that's, yeah. Um, I'll go through phases where I'm I'm doing a lot of work. And then I have come to value, and at first I thought it was a rationalization, but I've come to value those times where, like, you know, the between writing times, you know, where when I'm walking the dog and I haven't done any writing at all, but maybe I'm yeah, you know, I'm just engaged in the world and sometimes ideas come up or whatever. Well, you know, no or you gotta
0: you gotta let your subconscious work. And that's a great way to rationalize fucking around. Just be like, listen, yeah, <laughs> my, my subconscious is working on my novel. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's you know, by being on Twitter for four hours, yeah. I will have solved so many problems.
0: I'm you know, I'm on the I'm in this kick now and it's gonna I know it sounds sanctimonious, but I'm on this kick where I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing it anymore. I'm gonna just do the most meaningful work. I'm not going to get distracted with all this other social media bullshit and the internet. Like I've, (laughs) I've completely cut it out of my life successfully for like the past, you know, three weeks or whatever, um, to good effect. And like, I'm wondering how long it, you know, like, is it going to continue? Like, is this indefinite or am I going to slide back into it at some point? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm so bad at, I've tried it a bunch of times. I
1: tried right after, um, after the election, because every day it was just like this parade of nightmares that people were sharing, and I was like, "I can't." This is such an unhealthy way for me to live. And then it was like three days
0: later, I was just back in there. Uh, but just I had raging the the Philadelphia Eagles fan in you comes back.
1: Yeah, yeah, the rage isn't gone. It just it just now more diluted and spread <laughs> out across
0: many <laughs> platforms. Well, you want to share it widely. You don't want to be. <laughs> what uh yeah. What's what's uh, it's it's a weird time. I feel like I'm in a kind of denial. Or like maybe that's a part of it. It's like it's like I'm enforcing a kind of isolation on myself for the purposes of health. But you know I've also got to be engaged. So it's like trying to find right. some trying to find some sort of balance. But you know it, it, it's it, it goes beyond that. I think that I'm coming to the realization, probably too late. Just because that's my tendency. I always come to these epiphanies like way after most of the like, the really smart people. But it's like it's not essential to the most important work of my life. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Like, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. This is not adding value at a level that justifies it. Uh, I'm not getting that much from it, and I, I don't think... Like, But then at the same time, and this is maybe to, to kind of swing it back around into your book and the, and the game of publishing or the business of publishing. I feel like I, I think I would have deleted all of my social media, but I've kept some of it because I feel like publishers will want me to have it. Absolutely. And yeah. so, but I'm kind of like, I kind of want to just delete it anyway and be like, sorry, I don't do that. I'm working on books and like, not in like a dickish pretentious way, but just like in a, you know, I'm not spending my time on this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, that's absolutely a
1: consideration where it's like, uh, you know, some publishers really want to I. I've heard some people. So there's, you know, there's these writing conferences everywhere. Uh, we at Barrel House runs a writing conference and, and I've been to a bunch of others. And sometimes we'll talk to writers who are sort of from way outside the writing world. and They're trying to break in and they'll say, well, I went to this conference where I, you know, I paid $20 to meet with an agent. And the agent told me you need to have 10,000 Twitter followers to even get a chance of a book contract. And I said, well, that's not really true. Most of the writers I know don't have much uh, of an audience on Twitter at all. Uh, but maybe that's like a nice way of doing a brush off or something.
0: Well, no, uh, I should just delete my fucking account because I, I think I'm, my Brad Listy account only has like seven thousand or something or six thousand. No, so you're I'm basically f- worthless. I'm fucked. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm human. <laughs> I'm human scum. Let's just make it official and take it to zero. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, between
1: so I run the Barrelhouse account on Twitter, and I also run the BookFight account, which is the podcast I do with Mike Ingram. And between all three of them, I think I have less than ten thousand combined.
0: Um, well, see, I have like, I mean, between the nervous breakdown, my personal account and other people, I think I'm, I'm at like a healthy, like 20 something, but oh yeah, yeah. I'm, fu- I'm fucking, I'm crushing you, dude. <laughs> you've got a platform, you know, you've got, uh, so. oh. but see, I don't, this, this is the thing. This is the thing. Like I get it. Uh, you want the author that you're investing in to be able to help you get the word out about the book and to promote it and whatnot, right. but like at what level do you really have to be at on Twitter? for it to actually move the needle like don't you have to have like millions of followers i, I mean i i just don't know I, th- I feel like maybe that's like a a myth or something i don't buy i don't buy it i don't think it really yeah. matters. does it really matter does anyone really give a shit is anybody like oh i'm gonna buy that book because someone just tweeted about it i you know maybe <laughs> yeah well, ha- how much do
1: you check your the web traffic for the nervous breakdown?
0: All, like very rarely. Like I mean, yeah. I, I'll check it periodically just to see how it's doing, but it's I can't obsess about that stuff. Like it just feels like wasted energy to me. And I think having done it for 10 years and having done social media for whatever, 8, I don't even know how long it's been, you know, been happening, but like you know, you go through phases especially early on where you're doing it a lot more, you're checking it a lot more and yeah. I think I think if I made any great error, it was in miss um, misunderstanding the importance uh, of this stuff or like the reach it can have. Like I'm very proud of the nervous breakdown. It's an online literary magazine and, or culture magazine and literary community or whatever. But we, we all know at this point, I think that the kind of website that the nervous breakdown is, is for a niche audience. Right. And the, it's for the kind of people who are deeply interested in literary fiction and nonfiction and poetry. Um, there are many such sites on the web Any, you know, there's like an endless number of blogs and you carve out your little piece of that audience, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's unrealistic to expect that there are going to be millions of people tuning in every once in a while. We'll have an essay or something that goes super viral and you get hundreds of thousands of people coming in, but, um, that's the exception and not the rule. And that's just the way it is. I, I can't imagine that it's, that it's any different for the litany of other, um, you know, blogs at its level. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's this, this dream that like when you have that thing that goes viral, so many people are going to stick, but probably only a handful actually stick around that's, for any other that's, thing that's there. Not, and that's like,
0: not the way the internet works. Like I don't, yeah. even, I read viral stuff all the time. I don't I remember half of where it doesn't matter where it's from. It's just whether or not the essay is any good. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then so like, you know,
1: w- with Barrelhouse, we'll check the web traffic to see what's you know, when we're promoting the conference or something. We're trying to figure out like what's actually working. Twitter drives very little traffic for a lot of our things that we're actually trying to sell. And we we use it to promote, but like it's it's compared to Facebook, it drives one percent of the traffic that Facebook drove. And even Facebook, I don't know how much that's actually doing. You know, it's like. Yeah, like you said, the audience is, is limited unless you're Roxanne Gay or something. You have you have
0: such a narrow reach. What what is it with but but what is it with people who do have like this sort of like really sticky internet following and like everything they do? It's like it's some at some point you do reach a critical mass where like every time you sneeze, like there's like a thousand likes. You know, like what yeah. that's a weird thing. Like I guess you just it's called fandom. People you've developed some <laughs> sort of emotional bond with people. Like but I, I say that um only like like half choking. Like it's like, it, it mystifies me because um, it's not because I don't have a thousand likes every time I sneeze. It's that I, I don't have – I'm not that kind of fan of anything. <laughs> yeah, right. That's just like whatever this
1: person does, I'm going to love it. Yeah, I haven't felt that way about – well I guess I was like that with football for a while. I was going to uh, say
0: it's just the Eagles and the Packers between yeah. the two of us. <laughs> the only thing we can uh, the only thing that can summon our enthusiasm is a gladiator blood sport. <laughs> yeah,
1: and you know when I was you know when you're uh, when I was a teenager whatever music I got really into or you know those kinds of things. But then it, it's like that that sort of undying uncritical love of a thing. But uh yeah, it's uh it's weird and I don't know like I would love for, for this book to do really well obviously and I want to Billion people to read it and everything, but I feel like it would really freak me out to have to know that every thought that I share with the internet is shared with 250,000 people. Well, uh, but
0: here's a here's a here's a I just had a thought with regard to Roxanne because I just had her on the show, right? I think that you know, along with having like being an example of somebody who's got a very sticky internet presence uh, with a lot of fans. She also has a lot of uh, really vicious people attacking her in public and people see that. So I think part of that is that she has a lot of people trying to protect or, you know what I'm saying? Like supporting yeah. her supporting her in, in reaction to how much vitriol is thrown her way. Um, so maybe it's like if you are a person who puts yourself out there in op-eds and personal essays and whatnot and you become a kind of lightning rod or a cultural megaphone or whatever you want to call it maybe that opens you up to that kind of polarized response i don't know yeah that's for sure yeah i mean she and yeah she deals with some really
1: vicious bullshit uh just all day long i would think that she's getting you know uh cruel emails and whatever uh and yeah you're, I guess, you're
0: not getting that with uh like your book about a widower yeah that's right <laughs> like, like, fuck you man <laughs>
1: yeah that's uh i got um i got two pieces of angry mail about the in, angry email not mail about the uh the memoir and they were both because uh the philadelphia Inquirer, our newspaper here ran a short snippet of of it in in the paper and um it was they gave, they gave it the weirdest fucking headline it was uh the, the headline was a football fans quivering machismo
0: and uh i didn't wait that was the headline yeah yeah because
1: <laughs> if, there, if there's
0: one thing i've thought about you this entire conversation it's it's that your machismo is quivering
1: yeah i mean i feel like it comes through at all times <laughs> my 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 quiver <laughs> uh the and it was just this little bit from the book about kind of like the weird kind of Psychosexual relationships some people have with the way they talk about like young black bodies when they watch like the NFL Combine or something, um, and so it was actually probably not a great fit for the Inquirer op-ed page. But I had a friend who was going to run it, and I was like, "Yeah, the hell, yeah, let me sell a couple books." Uh, and I got two emails from people, you know, older people who actually were reading the newspaper who were real mad about it. Uh, but one guy's letter just said one was uh, a, it was like telling me ways I can make my life better. Um, And the other one just hit the whole email, just said, is that the way you write in Iowa? Um, And I wrote back and I said, I'm not sure I understand your question. And he just said, that's what I think of you. Uh, So I don't know. Damn. Uh, That's all I can... Uh, but if that's the worst I get, I can live with that. Yeah, man. no shit. I, uh...
0: Uh, and you can't please, you can't please everybody. It's, like it's almost offensive if you don't have at least a couple haters. You know, it's like, what did I do yeah. wrong? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and probably if the if if you're writing
1: stuff that's designed to just like placate everybody, you've fucked something up. I think.
0: Yeah. Do you ever have doubt? I mean, like, what? How do you deal with doubt? Do you have a lot of it? <laughs> do you have a lot of self confidence as a writer? Do you go through periods where you're like. What the fuck is this? Like is this a big piece of shit? Like do you have that <laughs> Yeah, man. I um on the most recent thing
1: this shooting book, I had just sent it to my agent um right before Christmas I sent it to her cuz I wanted it out of my I wanted it in, in 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 her hands before Christmas and it was the first time I'd shown any part of it to anybody after 2 years. And I felt pretty good about parts of it, but it was also like it's possible I'm a crazy person who's been spent the past 2 years writing <laughs> a manifesto yeah and sh- she's going to call me and say tom this is what are you doing this isn't even english uh and so uh fortunately she had better feedback than that but um yeah for sure i mean the doubt is probably the thing that when i waste so much time online that's probably it's that fear that's probably the biggest reason it's like okay you've got to make some big decision in this book you have to like it's time to be an adult and like do the work and instead i kind of retreat to you know, let's look at some videos of dogs or whatever. <laughs>
0: well, how do you get started with an idea? I mean, you just have something that's like, just bothering you or I know you talked about with uh, widowers, you talked about just like the book was born out of a conversation with your wife on your anniversary or whatever. But uh, like, w- what is it? How did how did the school shoot? I mean, the school shooting was just watching the news and then you start thinking about it and then you get a character or do you get a yeah. title? Like, w- what is it? How does it work for you? Like germination wise? Um.
1: I definitely didn't invent this this exercise or this idea, but a thing that I, I use in my when I'm teaching um, creative writing is I ha- I'll always have an exercise, especially in nonfiction, where I would have the students uh, write about an obsession in some way, and because um, I feel like a lot of the writing I really love comes from some some kernel of obsession, whatever it is, whether it's with you know a pop star or w- with a bigger idea or with someone's death or any of those things. And so, you know, with the memoir that started with writing very literally, we started the first thing, uh, the second chapter of the book is called Confessions of an Obsessed Football Fan. And so it started from that. Um, but the, uh, with Widower was the same thing, kind of obsessing over what's the, what would it be like? And then with the shooting book was the same deal where like, I just found, I I had other stuff I was writing about and I've written, you know, some other short essays and things, but like i just found myself every day think you know reading more and more about the ways we respond to mass shootings the ways that they happen uh the the kind of the ptsd effects they have on the people around them this weird thing where like i don't know if you know how much you know about uh i don't know how much of your life you've wasted reading about uh so-called crisis actors but there's this this conspiracy theory that um Like, for example, the kids at Sandy Hook, that Sandy Hook was staged and that the children who were killed weren't actually killed. They were just actors and their parents are just actors hired by the government. Oh, my God. Uh, And so there are these people who – there are some people who have actually moved to Connecticut so they can harass the families of these dead children because they think that they're somehow plants from Obama or the CIA or whoever – the, it's crazy and it like just i i, I it's the sort of thing that just like gnaws at you all day at least me not at me all day long thinking about like just how fuck that is uh and so
0: yeah I, can't, um, I cannot even imagine being one of these parents and you're already going through like the worst shit ever yeah. and then you've got you've got a sense like these people are like kind of a combination of like truthers and like the uh what's that church in Kansas that got Westboro Baptist? Yeah. It's like that. It's like the combination of those somehow or something like, you know, just like hateful idiots. Yeah. With too much time and somehow a lot of disposable income.
1: And, uh, yeah. And so like, that's basically what I started. That's kind of where that book came from. Then it sort of evolved into some different stuff. And I mean, what that book ended up being about, or at least what it is right now, as I'm working on it is, um, the idea of, of feeling, safe like is there a way that you can go out in public and feel safe in the world uh, uh and you know obviously i'm not you know i go out i do stuff i go to work i go to public places but every now and then i you, you know you're in a movie theater or something and i think like oh right people get killed in these now
0: yeah uh, and- like i'm the kind of person who like i, I kind of I hate to admit this but whenever i'm like you know just walking around or i'm in my car or something like an airplane is flying overhead like way up in the sky I always look up at it and I'm thinking like, I hope it stays up there. You know, like, I hope, yeah. you know, hope it doesn't blow up right now. Like I'm always thinking awful shit like that. Yeah. And so it's same.
1: And so we're in the flight path. And so there are some planes that fly low and every now then that. It's like, yeah, well, I guess if that comes down, we're done. I don't, <laughs> it's the end of that. And, uh, so yeah, the book sort of started with that obsession of like trying to figure out, like, so starting with a character who's like a, uh, you know, 10 degrees worse than that. Someone who is, is really obsessing and paranoid and, trying to find their humanity and also trying to find a way to basically get them out of the house uh, and trying to figure out how they can operate in the world in a way that makes sense.
0: Um, yeah, I can totally see like being a survivor of any kind of uh, gun violence, you know, where you've witnessed it up close and you've seen how chaotic and random and destructive and terrifying it can be like all of a sudden you don't want to leave your house. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. It's yeah. Cause it just, completely random arbitrary
1: chance like um another book on this topic that's really good is the one i think it's called um one of us it was by a norwegian author about the uh by anders brevik who did a shooting at uh he shot like a summer uh, camp it was
0: like a summer camp in yeah Nor- in sweden or something right or norway yeah, or- yeah
1: and yeah, he the- shot like 90 people or something it was yeah, uh he's
0: a fucking he's a fucking madman
1: yeah yeah and he's uh he's he's like a real neo-nazi type he's apparently a hero to some of the alt-right types uh yeah that book is I- incredible and in you know unlike the Columbine one I knew almost nothing about it but it's similar in in its
0: scope it makes sense um, it makes sense to me that you don't have kids because to you know, to, <laughs> to engage like I have two kids like to I can't even like watch I can't watch even like the most uh, like mildly violent things on television without having trouble sleeping like I'm very sensitive to that in ways that I was not previously like I don't know if I'm just a big wuss or what happened to me but like i just can't do it i can't even go there
1: no i think that's i don't think it's a i think it's a pretty rational response just to think like oh i've i'm now responsible for these very vulnerable people but also there's not a whole lot i can do to stop a lot of that stuff uh it's terrifying
0: well i it's, it's also uh, arbitrary but it's also statistically i mean i'm knocking on wood but like it's also uh, statistically very unlikely, and so that's another right. that's another part of all of this that's so noxious, especially like gun violence or violence perpetrated, you know, man against man or whatever. Is that you have this sort of thing happen, and all of a sudden you find yourself adjusting your behavior. Um, we saw this in reaction to nine eleven, like writ large. Absolutely. You know, all, all this response to terrorism. You find yourself suddenly altering your behavior in response to what remains a very statistically unlikely thing and uh, like my wife and i are uh, gonna take a trip and it's just gonna be the two of us and uh, like we're booking separate flights where we're like you know that's not, oh really well we have kids and like they're young and it's like wow. why? you know if we and then i'm like but wait a minute is it are we insane like am i paranoid <laughs> like statistically it's unlikely that anything would happen but if something did we will have orphaned our children unnecessarily because we didn't just bother to fly separately. Like, I don't know. Like, it's like at what level, I guess you got to just find your comfort zone with regard to, uh, what kind of risk you're willing to tolerate. But, you know, it, it, it sucks when some lunatic, you know, does something dumb and hateful. And then suddenly we all have to take our shoes off at the airport. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And there are all these other, compromises we all
1: make day to day like uh you know i drive my car every day and I, that's much more likely to kill me than any of these other things all Right? um or you know my, my wife drink and i alcohol never, my, my or, wife and know. i
0: we never travel in the same car either <laughs> really no i'm kidding so, i'm kidding <laughs>
1: I'm say which one of you is the vp and which one is the president yeah right uh, <laughs> so,
0: she's, she's um, the
1: vp or she's the president i'm the vp yeah <laughs> um but then i, I feel like uh I, I have to feel like I should apologize to your listeners I, that this is I made this a really dark episode uh, just about all the various ways people can die. But um, it's all right. You they know, don't, they don't mind on obsessions like there's other stuff, too, where sometimes the thing I'd be obsessed with is like a joke. So, for example, I have a couple stories up at Hobart, the literary journal uh, about um, where the conceit is. It's about sports mascots, but they're not people in costumes. They're actually just like a giant pig or a giant gorilla or th- something like that. Uh, So I have one, it was just a joke where we were at a baseball game, we went to a Phillies game, and uh, they have dollar dog day, it's dollar hot dogs, and people go and gorge themselves on hot dogs, they eat like nine hot dogs, and uh, the mascot comes and shoots hot dogs out of a gun into people's hands, it's a real grotesque spectacle, and uh, what they bring a mascot from the hot dog company who's a pig, who's handing out hot dogs to people, and so I just wanted to write, I just kept making this, I kept laughing to myself basically about how weird it would be if an actual pig was in charge of handing out hot dogs to people?
0: Uh, so then I wrote a story about it,
1: uh, and I it brought me a lot of joy. This is how great uh,
0: literature is born, people. If you're listening,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm so. uh Wait, man, I read that story. That story killed at a reading. Uh, that's a good re- reading for a bar because it's just like five pages,
0: and it's uh, you pig, know pigs handing out hot dogs. What could be better? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a dumb joke, basically. (laughs) Well, what I always say to, what I always like, my logic on readings is that you you should either be funny or should be, or it should involve sex, or I guess, or you can be really fucking sad. Sometimes that works too. (laughs) But it's generally like, just read something funny or read something involving sex, and then be done in within five minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, with Barrel House, we've run a lot of events uh,
0: because we've been around for since
1: two thousand four, and we've had. Some readings that have gone terribly where where we've had great writers, but they come up and they read a 25 minute thing that's loaded with dialogue and it's uh, like, you know, subtle. And and like the people in the bar or wherever aren't they're just not going to they're, they're not into it. Yeah. Um, you just need someone who's going to come in with some energy and, and get to the point and get some laughs. That's why I think a lot of poets are really great readers. Not yeah. all of them. But... Well, no, But
0: yeah, but it's but it's uh, performative. It's short. I think there's anxiety in people like I feel anxiety when I'm spectating. Yes. Where it's like, how long is this going to be? Like, I it's like because you really have to focus. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And then you don't want to be rude, and you like you have to pee, or you want to get a beer. It's like, oh, uh, you know, it's it's too much. So, I'm a big fan lately of the idea of doing just a Q and A, like no reading, just like go up there, do a Q and A, make it conversational and fun, involve the audience, be done, serve drinks. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah,
1: that works. Cuz so, what. yeah, you're like you look up there and you start to count the pages in their hand. Say, There's yeah. no way they've got seven <laughs> pages left. I hope it's a big font. Yeah. But uh, hope it's courier new. Yeah. That's that's what I usually actually do print it it probably in like 14 courier just to make sure I can read it very clearly when I'm in the and so sometimes I'll start off and say like I know somebody who might be counting the pages it's not really 15 pages. It's a lot shorter than it looks uh because yeah, I feel that anxiety for the reader. If they if the if you can tell the reading's not going well, you're just thinking like, oh man, I hope I just feel bad for them. I just I want them to to be able to sit down and have it be have it over.
0: Well, I think what you should do uh since your book is about to launch is when you go do your events you should just bring the clip of this particular section of our conversation and just play it for people <laughs> in, in lieu of actually reading anything from your novel. <laughs> you know, that that could especially work.
1: Uh, you know, that would be that, where that would work great is at like an AWP reading where <laughs> uh, it's real seasoned reading goers. Yeah, people who really know the shit, who've been there. Yeah, the man, I can tell you there was this time we went, uh, Dave Housley, who's one, another one of the Barrel House editors, he was promoting one of his books in 2012, I think, in Chicago at AWP and we went to this reading and it was just one of those readings where, uh, for p- if people aren't familiar at AWP, a lot of times the readings get very bloated because people are doing favors for each other this press says, like, oh yeah, you can come on and, and join in and then the, the writer says, oh can my friend come they have a book too, so we ended up to, at this reading, Dave was going to read and they were, there were 17 readers on the lineup. And it took four hours,
0: dude. That's and insane. Seventeen readers is egregious. It should be no I, more than four.
1: Yeah, four four is the limit, and they should have a strict time limit. Uh, and I mean, there were times halfway through where we all thought maybe it's best if we all just died. You know,
0: uh, yeah. what, <laughs> well, what, just what like the stage, stage a walkout and protest something. Yeah,
1: I can't. It was after that that we were like, "Hey, we are never running a reading again." I can't. <laughs> we were scarred for readings about three years because it was just the individual readers they were good but what are you going to do after 10 people everybody just needs to go
0: yeah well i I remember like because like i used to do uh i would do events in la and i would always feel bad because like in la it's the kind of city where you feel like you got to entertain people it's like a read like if you're doing a reading in like seattle it's one thing but when you're in la i feel like you have to put on a show like i feel in Certain cities, like there are, is a more like explicitly literary crowd. You know what I'm saying? Who, yeah, yeah, they're ready for a reading. But and maybe I'm underestimating Los Angeles literary people. But like I'm always like, you know what? We gotta we gotta put on a show. Let's get a band that keep people interested. Maybe bring up a comedian. <laughs> you know, like yeah, something. You know, to keep this thing kind of uh, lively. And we had, I want to say four readers initially and then two more really wanted to get in and you sort of say yes because you feel like oh, i know this person let's let him up there but what happened was by the time we got done with a sixth reader everybody in the audience was burned out and went home and we had like a pretty good band you know like, <laughs> and we had rented out this place and like the band goes up and it was literally like me and like two other people like standing there like listening to these pe- this band play their set and uh, oh. I felt so bad. I just gave him like all the cash. Like I was just like, "Here, yeah, like, <laughs> you guys like hauled all your gear." You know,
1: like that's, that's uh, planning events. It gives me so much anxiety, me for, like, too, just because me you have too. to count on so many people who you know like who don't want you to who don't want you to count on them. That's uh, uh, you know, well, I mean, like as Barrelhouse plans this conference, but it's a different thing where people are buying tickets and mean, there's a structured thing to it. But like a reading event, it's like you could do everything right, and four people are gonna show up. And then you feel like shit because these readers came. They brought a box of books and they're like I'm going to sell my book tonight, and uh, you know nothing happened.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, and it's just like worrying that people aren't going to show up, and you know, yeah, oh man, it's that's yeah, I get ang- I get anxiety about it too. Uh, I feel like we have a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like grief obsessed and very anxious. This is good.
1: Yeah, it's the perfect combination. <laughs> and, we, yeah. uh,
0: and, we, and we and we and we love violent sports, violent spectacles. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh yeah, we just sit at the corner at the Super Bowl party and talk about uh talk about death. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, listen, uh it's it's great to get to feature your book in the club and to uh shine a little bit of light on it. It's good to talk to you and to kind of meet you uh here over the transom and I wish you well with the uh the next novel.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for featuring the book. I'm really very grateful about that and for and for having me on the show. <laughs>
0: All right, folks, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. It's a great way to uh, help the show continue to exist. You can also support the show by writing reviews over at iTunes. That does help. That helps the show find new listeners. It improves its rankings and so on. Helps uh, with the algorithm. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's an easy way to help. You write a review over at uh, iTunes. That was Tom McAllister. His debut novel, The Young Widower's Handbook, is out there now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. It is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Tom online at tom.mcallister.ws. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at T underscore Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app. The app is free. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Get it wherever you get your apps. Search for Other People with Brad Listy. You'll find the app. It's free. You download it to your device. It's the best way to listen. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to get at the archives, 450 episodes and counting. You just sign up for an Other People Premium subscription right there within the app. It's safe. It's secure. It's 75 cents a month. It's cheap. As 75 cents a month. Gets you access to everything anywhere you go at your fingertips. Best way to listen. Also a way to support the show. <laughs> if you want to join the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, you can do that over at the nervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar for details. So yeah, man, life is fleeting. So it's a real heartbreaker. Mark Balmer. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, if there's any silver lining in an awful tragedy like this, it's uh, to be inspired to make uh, literary art and to uh, put your money where your mouth is and do things that you believe in. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And uh, thanks to Mark Balmer. And again, uh, rest in peace. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back next week with another conversation with another writerly human being.